That song has special significance for me as just a few months ago I was able to sing that at my grandmother's bedside as she was just a few days from passing into the presence of the Lord. The Lord lendest her breath but a few more days and then the death dew lay cold upon her brow but I know that she could say resolutely that she loved the Lord and that the Lord loved her until those final moments when she got to see him face to face. There's nothing like singing the truths of these hymns while being faced with the imminency of death and to recognize that these great truths that we sing are not just some lighthearted things to get us through the next day or the next week, but they are truths that steady us through life and bring us all the way through life until those final moments of life. And uh, indeed, we can say, my Jesus, I love thee. Well, let's bow in a word of prayer as we come to God's word this morning. Our Father, we do ask that you would please increase our love for you. We believe, but help our unbelief. We love you, but please increase our love. Help us to see Christ in your word. And Father, may you cause our devotion to be strengthened this morning as a result of that. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, many of you no doubt are familiar with the quote by C.S. Lewis, who said in his book, Mere Christianity, He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. Lewis says, that is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to it. Excuse me, open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus is either who he said he was, or he's a crazy madman, which is what Lewis was saying. It was it's true in our day. And it was true in the day that Jesus presented himself to the nation of Israel. They had to take his claims at face value. And they had to come to grips with who he is, with his identity, and what were they going to do with him? How were they going to relate to this Jesus? Were they going to cast him off? Were they going to accept him? Were they going to hold him at a distance? They needed to decide. Jesus went around in that first century Israel to present himself to the nation to declare that he was indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. 
He went teaching in their synagogues, performing great miracles, and he announced himself as the Spirit-anointed Son of God who had come to usher in the kingdom. The Gospel of Matthew records that John the Baptist and Jesus both came announcing that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. They could say that they could say that, that the kingdom was at hand because the king had arrived. Jesus, the king, was there. He was the special son of David who had, was uniquely qualified to sit upon the throne. But Israel could not enter that kingdom as she was. She needed to repent of her sin, which is why they said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can't come as you are. You need to turn from your sin. And so this is why they included repentance in their message of announcing the kingdom. And some heard this, and they turned from their sin, happily accepting Jesus as the king. But others hardened their hearts and refused to bow their knee to Christ. And others were still figuring him out. They weren't quite sure what they were going to do. And so this is what we're going to see in our passage this morning, is that there's different ways that people choose to relate to Jesus. Some of them are positive. Some of them are negative. However, for us to look at these responses, it's crucial for us so that we would be able to better understand where we stand with Christ. Going back to Lewis's quote, we need to know who Jesus is truly. We need to understand his identity, and we need to come to grips ourselves with who he is for us. No one else can make that decision for us. We've got to look at Christ and we got to decide what we will do with him. Luke wrote these words for us so that we could read about Jesus and come to an understanding of him and his ministry. So we need to see what, who this Jesus is as is presented in our text for us. And so I invite you to turn in your personal copy of God's word to Luke chapter 7. The Gospel of Luke chapter 7. We're going to be reading this morning from verses 18 through 35. Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. 
This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not, we- did not weep. For John the Baptist came eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Well, in this text this morning, as it primarily centers around Jesus and John the Baptist, we're going to look at three lessons about relating to Jesus that help us to see what is at stake in our own relationship with the Lord. In order for us to see what's at stake in our relationship with the Lord, we're going to look at how there's three different lessons in relating to Jesus here. And the first is in verses 18 through 23, and it's this. We're going to see the propriety of questioning Jesus. The propriety of questioning Jesus. Now, by propriety, I simply mean the appropriateness of it, the properness of it. It is proper, it is right in certain circumstances to question Jesus. In the church, people have often had questions or doubts about their faith, and sometimes these people are criticized. They're said, oh, if you were a a true Christian, you wouldn't have these sorts of doubts. Or they're simply written off and ignored and say, oh, you'll be fine. But I think what we see in this passage is that Uh, questions sometimes come up and they're okay. They're proper. That sometimes the most faithful among us might have the most penetrating and deep, rocking questions. And so there's a place for people to question and we need to realize that even one as great as John the Baptist had his questions. Let's look at verses 18 and 20. It sets the stage here for the scene that plays out before us. Verse 18, the disciples of John, that is John the Baptist, reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? The disciples of John have obviously been following Jesus and his ministry, watching to see what Jesus does, and then they take the report back to Jesus. That's what it says, verse 18. They reported all these things to Jesus. No doubt both the teaching as well as the miracles. They, they wanted to get a full picture of all that Jesus was doing and then take that back to John. Now, why did John not come himself? Because John is in prison. This is what Jesus, or rather Luke, had already reported in chapter 3. If you flip back there, Luke chapter 3, verse 18. This is where Luke had last left John in his narrative. 
Luke 18, Luke chapter 3, verse 18, rather. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So John is in prison. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that he was held in a fortress at Machiris that was on the southwestern side, uh, southeastern side, rather, of the Dead Sea. Machiris was a fortress that was heavily fortified and improved by Herod the Great. It, but he, when he died in 4 BC, it was passed down to his son, Herod Antipas. And it was this Herod who took his brother Philip's wife Herodias. And John the Baptist confronted Herod Antipas for such a move. Because of that, Antipas threw John into the prison at the fortress of Machiris. From this prison, then, John sent these two messengers to Jesus. Wanted to see Jesus' ministry and wanted to deliver a message. Notice that he sends two messengers. This is important. Because we know from Deuteronomy chapter 19 that in the Old Testament, two messengers were important to verify uh, any story. In a courtroom, if there were to be witnesses that witnessed an event take place, there had to be two witnesses that agreed. And so for John to send two to Jesus with a message, with a question, and then to receive a message from Jesus and report it back to John, John wanted to make sure that it was delivered truthfully and that it was coming from both the witnesses the same way. And so he sends them because he has a question he needs answered. And notice that the question is repeated verbatim twice in the text. Verse 18 and verse 20. One in the mouth of John directly and one through the mouth of his messengers. And the question is this, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? The one who is to come is a designation for the Messiah. John had used this back in chapter 3 where uh, it says in verse 15 and 16, as the people were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. And John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie there's questions about who's the messiah john says i'm not the messiah but there's one who is coming who is and he is the one who is worthier and mightier than myself i think of also john chapter 4 verse 25 where on the mouth of the woman at the well she says i know that the messiah is coming he who is called the christ he was called christ they understood the Messiah was still to come. He was the one they were looking for. He was the one who would be coming, and they were waiting with great anticipation. But John, almost with more anticipation, right? He, his whole life had been building up to fulfill this ministry, to be the forerunner to the Messiah, to go out and prepare the people for the coming Messiah. And so he's been thinking about the one who's coming. But now, after that great ministry and seeing people flocking to him, where is he? He's in a prison cell. 
he's sitting there very likely anticipating his execution, not sure what's going to result. And so he has a very fundamental question. Essentially, he's asking Jesus, are you the Messiah or have I gotten this all wrong? Are you the Messiah or have I gotten this all wrong? Should we be waiting for another person? I mean, this question naturally puzzles us as we read this, right? You mean John the Baptist? The guy whose whole ministry was to go out and prepare the way for the Messiah, and he's not entirely sure on the identity of the Messiah? How could John have been so confused? Did he really not know that Jesus was the, the Son of God? Was his faith wavering? I mean, Again, he wasn't just any person in Israel. He had a special role. In fact, John chapter 1 records that he points to Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said that with conviction and confidence. And now it seems like that conviction is waning a bit. Now, some have tried to explain this question, these questions from John by saying that John, well, you know, he wasn't really, these aren't questions he had. He, was, he had disciples around him, and they had some questions, and so he wanted to help strengthen their faith, and so he sends these messengers to get an answer to put his disciples' uh, questions at rest. But I don't think there's any indication here that this question stems from his disciples. In fact, who's helping whom? His disciples are helping John. John's the one with the questions. And the disciples are going to ask Jesus to help him. And so I think the best way to understand what's going on here is that John is just flatly puzzled. He's puzzled. He had anticipated Jesus' ministry going a certain way. He's puzzled about the timing and the sequence of the Messiah's kingdom ministry, which led him to even question whether Jesus was the one. You see, John had, if you remember back to his message that he preached, had a lot of judgment in it. It had a lot of hellfire and brimstone. In uh, chapter 3, verse 16 and uh, 17, we, I read earlier the, the first part of verse 16. It goes on, he says, He, the Messiah, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John got the people ready for a Messiah who was going to judge, saying, listen, this Messiah is showing up, and he's got his winnowing fork in his hand, and you better be ready because he's bringing fire with him. And, and so now in Luke 7, John's in a, in a prison cell. His ministry is functionally over. He's... he's He's languishing there, and he's wondering if he got something wrong. He hasn't seen any fire yet, and his disciples haven't reported of any fire, any major judgment coming upon the people, upon God's enemies. But rather, he's, they're hearing of Jesus healing people, of Jesus bringing people back to life. In fact, if John's disciples had heard Jesus' message in Luke chapter 6, Jesus wasn't talking about judging his enemies. He was talking about loving his enemies and turning the other cheek. And so John's wondering if he got something wrong about Jesus' ministry. Why does it look so different from what he imagined? And he may have even thought that when he got in prison, well, I know the Messiah, 
and that Messiah is going to come, and he's going to destroy the enemies, and so I know he's probably going to get me out of here. Well, here he is continuing to languish in the prison cell. To answer these questions, Jesus doesn't immediately say anything. Look at, look at the text. Look at verse 21. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. Jesus, in one sense, says, hold on a minute. And he turns and just does a swath of miracles while those disciples are there waiting for an answer from Jesus. And by doing this, he's then able to turn back to them, verse 22, and speak to them saying, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus here performs miracles, and then he points John back to the Scriptures. He's quoting here from Isaiah, from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6 say this, Say, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Then Isaiah 61, verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Isaiah 61 was the passage you'll remember Jesus read at the synagogue in Nazareth when he began his ministry, announcing that he was the Spirit-anointed Messiah. And here again, in Luke 7, he points John, his relative, his friend, his forerunner, who is so questioning and so in doubt right now. He points him back to the Word of God and says, Yes, I am that Spirit-anointed Messiah. I am doing the things. I'm doing these kingdom miracles, validating my claim. These two witnesses both see the miracles and both hear the words from Jesus. He was declaring that he is able to bring the kingdom to Israel. He is the king, the messianic king, who could bring about these miracles and bring about these sort of kingdom conditions in which disease is banished. These miracles were a taste or a preview of the kingdom that he was offering to Israel. He was the promised Messiah. The kingdom was at hand. He had the power to do these great things if Israel would repent of their sins. But let me just say that even though these miracles make a bold statement about Jesus' identity as the Messiah and as the King, he, this is not proof that he here was establishing his messianic kingdom. It was not at this moment that his kingdom began. And there's three reasons for this. The first is that the miracles were not permanent. The people that were healed were only healed temporarily. But when the kingdom comes, the reversal of the curse will be permanent. Secondly, if the kingdom was established then, and the miracles were a sign of its establishment, then there should still be kingdom miracles today because the kingdom is still here today. But the kingdom is not now. It awaits a future day. 
the third reason why the kingdom was not established here is that later in Jesus' ministry, he began talking about the kingdom being something in the future. And he does not, at that moment, point back to his earlier ministry when he started to do all these miracles and say, come on, I've started the, the kingdom back then. He says, no, the kingdom is yet still future. And so the starting point, Jesus does not see any of this as the starting point for the kingdom. He was merely offering it in the person of the king and showing the miracles that he indeed was the king if they would accept him as such. Of course, we know the end of the story, and what we're going to celebrate this week is that he was rejected as the king, which means life for us. By their rejection of Jesus, he was crucified, buried, and therefore we are able to experience the blessings of the gospel because of his crucifixion. So Jesus, after pointing back to the scriptures, to Isaiah, for John, he then gives an encouragement to John. And really, it's also somewhat of a mild rebuke, a little bit of a correction to his friend John. Look in Luke 7, verse 23. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, he's saying, John, don't let your faith fail. Only those who believe in me will be blessed. If you trust and believe in me, then you will experience blessing. All those who stumble over me and stumble over my teaching will not experience that blessing. So stand firm, John. I know it may not look like what you're expecting, but hold firm. Trust in me. Don't stumble over me, and it will work out in the end. These words, this word of blessing, was probably the last thing that John heard from his king before he was put to death, before he was beheaded. I would imagine he clinged to that promise to the very end, that he was clinging to the truth, that this was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that this is the promised Messiah, the cornerstone, and that if he does not stumble over that stone, that he will receive blessing, and he carried that truth until his dying day. But I think this episode here of John's question is instructive for us. Because is it not common for us in this fallen world, in the midst of the suffering and the pain of our sin, for us, for for questions and doubts to rise up in our minds? We we wonder, what are you doing, Lord? What's going on? Are Are we missing something? Is this whole Christianity thing true? Because I'm struggling to see uh, the the truth of what what the Word says in my own life and experience. And so we can develop questions just like John, can we not? Questions, not just periphery questions. I mean, John's question is a core, deep question. And yet John asks it. He needs an answer. And so he goes to Jesus with his question. These questions develop for all of us. I think the persistence of our own sin can weaken our faith. We we look at our sin in our lives and we go, am I still a Christian if I keep sinning in these ways? We feel too guilty for Jesus. And our faith begins to falter. Or we look at the pain and the suffering 
that we experience in our lives, the hardships that we go through, the turn of events that surprise us and knock us off our feet. And we say, Lord, are you even there? And do you even care? Can you control? Can you do anything about this? Your word says that you are in control and that you're sovereign, but I'm struggling to see that right now. Are these things even true of you? And these questions arise when our experience doesn't line up with our expectation. When our experience doesn't line up with our expectations. Wasn't that true for John? His experience didn't line up with his expectation. His expectation that Jesus would... Sorry, hold on. My mic is caught. And it's like ripping off my head. Let's just do that. Okay. His... Uh, his experience did not line up with his expectations. He expected Jesus to be some sort of judge and come in with fire, and he wasn't seeing that. And so instead, he, his faith began to falter. And this is when doubts and questions arise in our own hearts. It's natural. But get this, we need to find the same solution that John did. How did Jesus help steady John's faith? He directed him back to the word of God. And friends, that is the answer for us today. When we have doubts and questions that arise, the, question is not, the, the answer is not to look deeper down inside of us. If we look deep down inside of us, we continue to see uh, blackness and things that make us more discouraged. Our emotions are not the compass for our lives. The Word of God is the compass for our lives, and the more that we look upon the Word of God, the more that compass in our hearts is aligned to that. We cannot be swayed to and fro by our fluctuating emotions, but we must ground our faith in the unchanging Word of God. So for our emotions to ebb and flow and for us to feel close to God and to, and to have these changes of our experience with God's, uh, with our expectation is natural. But when we have those questions and doubts, we've got to have them lead us to the Word of God. Not looking into ourselves, not trying to search in other places. It's the Word of God that is our foundation. It's the Word of God that is our foundation. And so we see from John that it's okay to question Jesus. There's a properness to that. We know that, that we can bring those questions to the Lord. The Bible is not afraid of our questions. Sometimes in the church, people bring up questions and they think, uh, yeah, don't ask that question. That's really, uh, you know, we're, we're, we can't really answer that. You know, you just need to believe. Just believe. Just trust. It's okay. And kind of push these questions to the side. But friends, the Word of God is not afraid of your questions. It's been taking questions for thousands of years, and it will take questions for thousands more. We can pound it with everything we've got, we can, we can barrage it with all of the inquiry that we can. And I can tell you this, that you're always going to find the Word of God to be true. It's proved true. It's perfect for us. It is sufficient, the Bible says, for everything that we need for life and godliness. We have all that we need in the Word of God. It's also important, I think, for us to learn from this text that in the church... 
in our small groups, in our homes. There needs to be space for people to ask questions. We shouldn't have such an environment that people are afraid to ask questions, that our kids are afraid to ask questions, not just uh, periphery questions, but ask core questions. And maybe we need to answer honestly and say, you know what, son, I don't know. That's a good question. I've just kind of always believed that. But let's go to the Word of God together. Let's study to see what the Bible says and to show that, that we can take those questions to the Bible. We've got to provide space for questions and doubts. But when I say that, there's, it's common today for people to just live in this space of doubt and questioning. It's, it's in vogue to simply live a spiritual questioning life. In fact, on spiritual surveys, people will just put questioning, and they just live in this perpetual state of questioning. And this reminds me of 1 Timothy chapter 3, where uh, Paul is talking about, sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, where he's talking about the last days and all these things that are happening, the signs of, of sin that show up in society. And he says that there are those who are, verse 7, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Friends, this is a state that we don't want to be in. The Bible is the truth. God, Jesus says, your word is truth, John 17, 17. This is where the truth is found for our lives in this world, and this is why we can go to the word of God. This is why we can study the word of God. But we should not be in a perpetual state of doubt, perpetual state of questioning. We need to allow those to land. And let me just say, if you are questioning this morning, if you do have doubts, we are thankful that you're here, and we want to hear those questions. We want to help you to investigate those questions, to study what the Bible says about why we're here, who we are, who Jesus is, and what the purpose of our lives are. There's big questions swirling around in our world today, big questions about who humanity is, about why we're here, and we can answer those. The Word of God can answer those, and we want to be able to help you to find those answers. But we see from this text as well that there is only one true answer to all of our searching. All of our searching can only be resolved in Jesus Christ. It is only in Him that we can find life and fulfillment. It is only in Him that we have salvation. Friends, Jesus pointed back to the Old Testament scriptures that pointed to him as the one. Jesus confirmed his identity as the promised Messiah. And that is an identity, and that is a confirmation and a verification that we need to see today. Luke wrote down these words so that you and I, 2,000 years later, can read that Jesus performed these miracles in fulfillment of these Old Testament texts. He indeed is the Spirit-anointed Messiah, which means that each one of us must put our faith in him. We must see him as Lord, not just as a great moral teacher, but as the Lord of all the earth who has come in human flesh 
and is deserving and worthy of the worship of every single human being. And that means that we must repent. To acknowledge Jesus as Lord means that we turn from our life of sin. We turn away from calling ourselves Lord, from thinking that we rule our lives, that we set the agenda. No, Jesus is Lord. He sets the agenda. He tells us who we are. He tells us what we are called to do. We have lives that are shaped by the King's word. He is Lord. And when we come and we bow before him and we confess him as Lord, we find life in his name. We find that he is the answer to all of our longings. He is the one that we need. Our sin is great. We cannot measure up in God's sight. We need one to stand in our place. And again, that's what we celebrate this week is that Jesus is the sacrifice who stood in our place to take the punishment that we deserved upon the cross. He was buried and then he rose again showing that that was accepted by the Father that his sacrifice was perfect, that his, sin, that his sacrifice was sufficient for our sin. It is finished, Jesus said. There's nothing else for us to pay. And for all of us who profess faith in Christ, we receive the stamp of pardon upon our lives. We're pardoned of all of our sin. Jesus paid it all. And friends, that Payment is available to us through Jesus by simply believing in him. If you have not trusted in Jesus up to this point, you can believe in him right now, right where you are, in the quietness of your heart, call out to God to save you. Ask him to forgive you of your sin. And you can experience the forgiveness that comes through him. Don't put it off another day. Don't wait until tomorrow. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. You do not know if you have another day. Get right with the Lord today. Get right with the Messiah, the Spirit-anointed Messiah today. And Jesus says, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessing comes to the one who believes and who trusts. I pray that you would take what we've seen here. We'll have to come back to this text to finish the remaining points. But I pray that what we've seen here about John questioning Jesus, about coming to the truth of the identity of Jesus, would help you to think about who Jesus truly is and where you stand with him. Do you have a personal relationship with him? Do you truly know the Messiah? You can. And if you have any questions, please feel free to come up after the service. I'd love to talk with you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for this example of such a great saint as John, who yet had so many questions. It is hard for us to fathom that one who had such a great mission, and even a, a divine mission, to announce to the people of Israel that he would waver in his faith. But, Father, it's so encouraging to us because we find that we waver in our faith as well. I pray for those who do have serious doubts here this morning, Father, you'd enable them to face them honestly, 
They would not continue to stuff them away, but they would truly ask them, truly search for answers, seeking the truth. I pray for those who have not yet repented of their sin, Father, that you would please give them the grace to turn from their pride, turn from their self-righteousness, and confess that they are bankrupt when it comes to righteousness and that they need Jesus. Oh God, would you grant life where there has only been death. We thank you for your spirit that it teaches us and illumines us. We pray that you would be with us this week. In Christ's name, amen.